Um, I don't know if you've ever had a situation where you hear some people talking about you, and then you turn to them and you're like, hey, what are you guys, uh, what are you guys talking about? And there's those, those look of shocks on their faces, like, oh my goodness, we didn't know that you were listening. Uh, I had an experience like that earlier this summer coaching baseball. Those of you who coach sports or have ever coached sports know it's always interesting to deal with parents, right? You try to be gracious, but it's difficult. We were, we were in the minor baseball consolation final. In other words, the World Series. And parents were like really, really into this game. And normally Little League baseball games are like, you know, 10 to 2 and 8 to 1 and 9 nothing. But this was actually a very close game. It was a one-run game which in minor baseball is, you know, astounding. And it was getting later in the game, and uh, there was a call on the field, and, and it's, it's, difficult, it's difficult to coach in situations like that. You know, you know, parents are like, why isn't little Timmy pitching? Put in my little Timmy. And what you want to say is, little Timmy has the aim of a stormtrooper, and that's why little Timmy will never pitch. But you can't say that, so you're diplomatically dealing with these things, and... And anyways, at one point, there was a call on the field, and one of the parents, I heard him, I heard him uh, barking away, and he says, he says, well, I don't know why our coaches are just standing there. I don't, know why, I don't know why our coach doesn't just go out on the field and deal with this. I don't know why he's just standing there. So I turned, and I walked over, and they were all standing there, and I said, I said well, the reason why I'm not going out is because this umpire, he made the call. It's in our favor. It's going to be okay. And, you know, and they all looked like, oh, we didn't know he was listening. And this guy was mortified. And then he did what, what lots of men do after they do something stupid. They try and be buddy-buddy and jokey later. Hey, 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 pal. <laughs> you and I are good, right? Yeah, we're great, man. We're awesome. And uh, in Luke chapter 15, this is that, this is that intense moment, that, that feeling of, oh my goodness, he was listening. In Luke 15, when Jesus is sitting around a table with these outcasts who are down and out, Drunks, prostitutes, people who are up and out, who are, you know, uh, culturally speaking, very successful, wealthy tax collectors. Jesus is sitting with these people who the religious community consider notorious sinners, and they are scandalizing Jesus. They are like, he is, he is uh, obviously got some sort of a connection, you know, to, to their sin, and he's attracted. They're just scandalizing him. They're, they're, they're upset about it. And so Jesus turns to the religious leaders in Luke 15... And, uh, and he gives them a parable. Three pictures to show them how spiritually destitute the situation is. The lost son, the lost coin, uh, and the lost sheep. He gives these three images. We're going to turn to Luke 15 in a minute. I'm going to read verses 17 through 32. And so Jesus gives the picture of this lost sheep and this lost coin who are obviously, they're utterly helpless to save themselves. In fact, they're utterly oblivious to the fact that they even need saving. How can a coin know it's an inanimate object? The picture here is it's just utterly destitute. It needs to be saved. It needs grace. And then he gets to the lost son, this reckless rebel that goes off and spends his father's inheritance and wrecks his life. But then as Jesus brings the parable to a close, which is where we're going to pick it up today, there's a twist. And the twist is there's not one lost son, there's two. You can be lost in two different ways. You can be lost by running away from the grace of God and living in reckless rebellion, but you can also be lost by trusting in your religious rule-keeping, which is precisely what the Pharisees were doing. And the, fair, and, and, and the, and the uh, religious leaders were so blind to the severity of their lostness that Jesus ends this parable with a striking image. 
to shatter their religious categories. And so we pick it up, Luke 15, starting in verse 17, uh, to the end of the chapter. But when this younger son came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have enough bread to spare? And I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and he had compassion. And he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And now his older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house. And he heard the sound of music and dancing. So he called one of the hired servants and he asked them what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come home. And because your father has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. And he was angry, and he would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he entered, and he said to his father, These years, all these years, I have been serving you. I have never disobeyed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with the prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, my son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should celebrate and be glad. For your brother was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's found This is God's word. Now Jesus, as this brilliant storyteller, shatters religious categories by ending the story abruptly. Really abruptly. Remember, the religious leaders are listening. The the religious crowd is the intended audience here for this teaching. And Jesus ends this, this teaching in a shocking manner. You've got two ways to run away and be lost. One son looks very, very bad. One son looks very, very good. One son is born to be wild. The other son has a Pinterest perfect underwear drawer. This is the picture. But what happens at the end of the story is that we find out neither one of them wanted the father. Both of them wanted the things that they could get from their father. And so at the end of the story, you've got the rebel is invited in, The rule keeper is left out. The end. Imagine if you're a religious rule keeper. Imagine if you're keeping the law better than anybody. Imagine if you had to draw a picture of somebody who obeys God's word, and that picture was actually you. And in the story that Jesus gives, you're outside the party. That's how Jesus ends the story. It's shocking. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's the dead... Religion calls you to a life of begrudging duty to God. But the gospel calls you into a life of love and true freedom that is motivated by the beauty of God. 
a massive contrast between begrudging duty and being motivated by God's, by God's beauty. The love of God versus this sense of begrudging duty, which is what Jesus is poking at. So Jesus holds up this mirror to the Pharisees to expose that um, you know, they are relating to God in a way that they think is saving them, and it is absolutely not saving them. I'm taking this, this kind of language about beauty and duty. I'm talking about begrudging duty. Like, there's no joy in it. Kids, if you look down at your notes, you're going to see, kids, if you look at those notes, you're going to see that that first blank there is begrudging duty to God. And then I give a little explanation there. And it means there's no joy in it. You're not happy about it. You're not doing it because you love, you love the Father. You're doing it because you feel that you're, you're obligated or this is somehow uh, uh, going to make your life turn out okay. Jonathan Edwards was a theologian in the 16th century. This is how we talked about it. He said, the religious hearts, you know, Jonathan Edwards, he's looking back at church history and the cause for the Reformation, and he's saying, he's saying the, uh, the religious hearts are always presenting God as useful, but the, the gospel-gripped hearts see God as beautiful. And so they're both going about their life from two completely different ways. So let's look at this first thing, how dead religion calls us into this life of begrudging duty to God. In verse 25, the older son hears music. He hears celebration. And then in verse 28, he finds out that the reason for the celebration is undeserved grace. And as soon as he finds out there's, there is undeserved grace, what's his response to undeserved grace? I don't want any part of that. That does not sound good to me. I'm not going in. And he doesn't go in. It's like the sound of undeserved grace is like music in the ears of those of us who know we need it. But it's like nails on a chalkboard if you don't think you need it. And the older brother, the religious rule keeper, is outside and he's going, this doesn't sound good, and he doesn't go in. And so Jesus is not ending this parable to warm the hearts. He's end- the way he ends this parable is to actually disturb the religious hearts. And so he's got this, this radical contrast here. And, and what he's trying to provoke the Pharisees and us, by extension, to see is that their problem wasn't their failure to demonstrate goodness. Their problem was that they put all their trust in their goodness. Jesus goes, that is toxic. I'm not looking for more goodness from you, he says. I'm trying to extract all your trust from this goodness. And so we see this uh, radical picture of this guy who's keeping all the rules. Notice that when he says to his father, I never disobeyed you, you know, in the story, and it is a parable Jesus is using, so we don't want to press it too closely for details because that's not a good way to look at parables. But notice this. He says, I never disobeyed you. And the father doesn't go, oh, hold on a minute. Yes, you have. I can, I can think of 17 ways you've disobeyed me right now. He says, I've never disobeyed you. But Jesus doesn't, doesn't contradict it because that's his, his point is not the pious level of our obedience. The point is that they were trusting in it. So the father just remains, remains absolutely silent about it. Kids, think about this. Let's say you go to your friend's house, and you go and you say, hey, can I get a uh, drink of water? They say, yeah. You go to the fridge, and the fridge is covered with artwork. And there's all these pictures on the fridge, and it's like a picture of mom and dad, and it says, I love you so much. You know, and your friend is just drawing all these pictures. I love you, I love you. And you're like, wow, they must really love their parents. Look at all this beautiful artwork they're doing for their parents. And then you go up into the room, and you find them in there drawing a picture, and they're going like this. Oh, man. Oh, I'm, boy, they are, I'm going to get that bike I've always wanted. 
Man, probably three or four more pictures, and it's mine. And you look over on their wall, and there's their vision board, you know. They got a bike, they got a Nintendo, they got, you know, stuff. And they're like, this, right here, all this, is going to get me that. Okay, kids, do you get the picture? Are you with me? This is, the, this is what's going on in the heart of the religious leaders. That's why they're doing everything. They're trying to put artwork on God's fridge, not because they love him, but because they're like, if I put artwork on God's fridge, maybe he'll feed me, maybe I'll get a promotion at work, maybe he'll heal me of this disease, maybe he'll accept me, in the end I'll go to heaven. That's what's going on here. It's begrudging duty. I mean, that's one way to take the joy of doing art for your parents and turn it into this begrudging task. You don't even enjoy it anymore. Oh my goodness, it's Sunday. Time to crank out some more drawings for Dad. Okay, here we go. That's what's going on. And so when you look at verse 29, oh my goodness, verse 29. What a, what a, as, as I was preparing for this sermon, I'm just I'm so convicted. Verse 29, okay. Look at verse 29. I've always obeyed, and you never. I mean, that is the mantra of the religious heart. I've always obeyed, and you never. Here I am reading the scriptures and praying. Here I am memorizing the catechism. Here I am teaching my children the gospel around them. Here I am in church on Sundays. Here I am giving generously my money to build the church and preserve it in the city so future generations can hear Christ. Here I am making all these sacrifices and yet you never healed me of this disease. I just went to the doctor and I'm still struggling with this. And yet you never gave me a promotion at work. Here I am doing all these things. And the atheist got the promotion. I can't believe it. What even is the point of serving God and worshiping God? I'm not making these things up. These are things I have thought. These are things I have struggled with. And these are things that many people pastorally have told me. You would not believe. Well, yeah, of course you would because you've done it too. (laughs) Okay, the amount of the folks who are struggling. If you want to meet an angry Christian, if you want to meet an angry, confused, frustrated Christian... Find one that's suffering from the disease of religiosity like this older brother. Because the moment that the father doesn't give them what they want, they're like, I'm out. I mean, I don't even know why I'm in this. Because I've been calculating the ROI, and I'm still sick. But this person over here hasn't gone to church a day in their life, and they're like, they've got the body of a freaking Olympian. I don't know why I'm going to church. This is how the North American modern religious mind gets stuck in this disease like the older brother. All of us have probably done it in some way. I know I have. We feel guilty of it. We get into this idea. The point is that the older brother is angry. He feels like the father owes him. That's the point. It's, the reason why it's begrudging duty is it's because I'm living in a way that obligates you to owe me. And I've got the struggle in my marriage or with my children or with this thing. And I feel like this is not fair because I have done enough that warrants that I don't deserve this God. That's the heart of that older brother. He's like, I'm out. And we struggle with it because here in North America, we've taken the grand, eternal hope of the gospel of life forevermore with God. I mean, the answer to our common enemy, our biggest problem in this room, all of us, is death. Okay? That's our biggest problem. So if we're philosophical for a moment and we step back and we say, what is the ultimate problem that every human, regardless of the world he is, is facing. It's, it is an impending and ultimate death. But the gospel has yanked that 
yanked us away from the trajectory of an eternal death and has said, I am now giving you something that in your heart and in your life is going to give you strength to go through anything uh, with a sense of hope and a sense of pervasive joy. But because in North America we've shrunk that down into a small version of the baptized American dream, to borrow from Michael Horton, like a therapeutic, you know, deism idea, God exists to make my life better. Because we've shrunk it down into that, like this, like this older brother did, I have done this, but you never. We shrunk it down, and most messages in many of the books that, you know, are prevalent in North America today make it that. We, we have essentially turned the gospel from the hope that there is united to Christ by faith, and we've turned it into, if you believe in God, your life will be better. That's what we turned it into. And I want to tell you something. Spiritually speaking, that's absolutely true. If your faith is in Christ and united to Christ by, faith, by, by his grace and faith alone, your life, spiritually speaking, will be better, no questions asked. Because regardless of what you're going through, there's a pervasive sense of strength and grace that is perfect in weakness. Nobody has a suffering-free life. Nobody. So, spiritually speaking, if you're united to Christ, your life is better. Circumstantially speaking, that's totally false. Circumstan- the message of Christianity is not, hey, unite your life to Christ by faith alone and your body gets better, your business gets better, your kids get better, everything gets better. That's not, there's nowhere in the scriptures is that actually taught. That circumstantially speaking, all the circumstances work out in our modern uh, perceptions of everything being okay. But the older brother thinks that they do, that they should. And so when they don't, and he hears the sound of undeserved grace for somebody who, has, who isn't, doing the life he, isn't living the life he's living, what have we done? For those of you who struggle with the disease of the older brother... What do you do in those moments? I'll tell you what you do. Your mind doesn't go to compassion for the person getting the undeserved grace. When somebody says, we got to get back from the doctor, clean bill of health. If you're sick, your mind doesn't go, what radical compassion and the gift of the Father. If you're suffering from the disease of the older brother, you hear about that and you go, after all that I have done, after everything that I have, you understand? This is what we do. You're struggling to make your ends meet. But this person over here who goes to church four times a year, because in your mind, you're like, well, I'm here every Sunday, they're here four times a year. If somebody should get the promotion, it should be me. And it's not, it's them. And when the disease of the older brother is working on our hearts, we're like, well, after all that I've done, after all that I've given, this is the challenge, this begrudging sense of duty. But the gospel yanks us out of all of this and says, no, 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 no. The hope of the gospel is a pervasive sense of joy, which is why in James chapter 1 and verse 2, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why would he say something? That sounds like such lunacy. Count it all joy when you fall into trials. What? It's because nobody has a trial-free life. Everybody's going, you are going to fall into a trial. You either, you either just came out of one. Everybody in this room, you hear at Redeemer today, you either came out of a trial, or you're in one, or there's one on the way. Because you're a human being. And you live on planet Earth and here in Kitchener-Waterloo. And you're surrounded by all these family and friends who are pilgrims on the way. So we're in the middle. We're... So James says, count it joy when you fall into the trial because of this very promise of the gospel, this very hope of the gospel. Because God's grace is perfect in our, re- in our weakness. If we have the disease of the older brother happening, and all of us kind of have at some point, or perhaps you've come here this morning and you're like, oh my goodness, I, I can recognize that disease in me today. The good news, of course, is that the, God's forgiveness and grace yanks us out of it, right? But if we have it going, then when we're in a trial, our heart keeps saying, 
God owes me. I don't deserve this. But when you rest in grace, your heart says, God is with me. God is with me in this. One is powerful, one is exasperating. Let's move on to the second thing. So, firstly, so kids, look down at your notes. So the first thing was that dead religion, which is what I'm talking about, this is what the Pharisees were suffering from. Dead religion calls you to a life of begrudging duty to God. But the gospel calls us into a life of true freedom and love, animated by the beauty of God. And you kids, you look down there, and you see that I define that word animated. When I say animated, you like watching animated movies, animated cartoons. These things are moving, right? When something is, when something is animated, it's being brought to life. So you think about if you draw a picture on, that, on those notes that I gave you, and you draw a little stick man, it's not animated. I mean, it's been illustrated, but it's not moving. But if you were to draw a little stick man on those notes from, from, that you're taking, and you gave that to an animator, and he took that little stick man, and he put it into a program, and he very you know, methodically and strategically animated it, he could bring your illustration to life. That's what grace does. To see the grace of God, it animates our hearts. So that the life we're living is, the reason I said true freedom, is because God doesn't save us and say, off you go, do whatever you want. Because that's going to end badly. What I want is what got me here in the first place, trusting in these little insignificant gods to save me. But the grace of God animates our hearts and it propels us into the life of love and, and enjoyment to God. So Jesus is this masterful uh, you know, illustrator and he has a provoking juxtaposition I want to draw your attention to. He does this in verses 19 and 29. If you look at verse 19 and verse 29 together, you're going to notice this radical juxtaposition. You've got... The younger son saying, make me a slave. But the father makes him a son. And then you've got an older son saying, I'm a son. But in his heart, he's a slave. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you. All these years I've been doing this stuff. In his heart, he's not a son. In his heart, he's a slave. But look at the the reckless rule keeper who reflects back on his father's house comes to his senses and goes back, and he says, make me a slave. And the father says, no. The repentance, I'm making you a son. The older son, no repentance. I'm a son. You owe me. And his heart, slave. See that? Jesus is masterful in how he draws this picture because grace animates our life of obedience toward God. It's like you've heard throughout the scripture that the Christian life is like running a race. Paul uses this metaphor of running a race. There's an old uh, film called Chariots of Fire. It's all about these two runners who are going to go and run this race. They're both running, but they both have these two completely different motivations. You've got uh, the the one character, Eric Little, and Eric Little says, I feel like God created me to run. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's like the gospel of grace. And then you have the other runner. His name is Harold Abrams. And Harold Abrams says, I've got 10 seconds to justify my life. The question is, will I? They're both running. One has a very liberating motivation. I feel like I was born to do this, and when I do it, I feel God's pleasure. And the other guy's going, this will justify me. And so God's uh, grace does this liberating work in our heart where we love the Father and we love our neighbor. We're not leveraging the Father and trying to leverage our neighbor. There's There's a difference. See, the Pharisees are trying to leverage God. They're trying to leverage salvation. They're trying to leverage blessing. 
And Jesus is saying, you can't leverage God. There's a difference between leverage and love. I remember one time when I was a very young preacher, we had a guest speaker uh, at our church. For those of you who know my prior context, it was a very large, uh, very large church, and we had speakers who came from huge, huge, huge contexts. And I had this particular speaker come in, and I really looked up to him, and we kind of hit it off, and we exchanged phone numbers, and so we were kind of texting back and forth, and I was really excited because I was like, hey, I want to be a big deal, you know, for Jesus, of course. I want to be a big deal. This guy's a big deal. And so now we've got each other's phone number, and I remember him texting me, and all of his texts were kind of like, you know, hey, so when's the next time I can come back and speak at the church? And so, I know, I wasn't the, I wasn't the, the senior pastor, so that's not my call to make. And so I was kind of like thinking, ah, oh, well, you know, just how are you doing? How's the family? And uh, he just kept kind of coming back to this. And so I, so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to ask, I guess. So I went and I asked. I said, hey, you know, so-and-so is wondering when they could come back and, and, and speak. And, and uh, so they're like, well, it would be a long time or whatever because we don't have, you know, we've got all these things we're, we're up to. And so, so my answer back to my friend was like, I don't know, man. And I never heard from him again. And I kept kind of texting him, hey, how you doing? I was gone. And what I realized in that moment, as my, as my heart kind of sunk into my feet, was that, like, I'm not loved. I'm being leveraged here in this moment. And those of you who have ever felt leveraged, not loved, you can identify with that. But you see, the gospel of grace pulls us out of the whole leveraging conversation, and it puts us into this loving, animated life of grace, where we want to love our neighbor and our spouses and our children. Kids, those of you that are around the table, you want to hear how God's word can guide your life. Because in that guidance, there's great enjoyment for you. There's great strength for you. There's great uh, pervasive joy that will be with you through all the trials of your life. We want that because we love the Father, not because we're trying to leverage the Father. When you look at uh, verse 25, there's music, dancing, and celebration. And you look at verse 26, and there is a fantastic question. What does all this mean? That's what the, that's what the older son asks. You hear the sound of celebration. What does it mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means that the prodigal didn't perform in a way that got him welcomed into the family. It means that you and I didn't perform in a way that got us into this family. The sound of celebration means that prodigal was in by grace. That sound of celebration means you and I are here sitting here this morning listening to God's word here by sheer grace. It means that the sound of celebration means that we are welcomed in. And when the sound of grace, of God's love, is ringing in our ears, we want to live a life to his glory. When the sound of celebration and grace is ringing in our ears, we are compelled, we are animated now to desire that God's word guides how we lovingly care for our spouses and our children and kids and students, those of you at university. As the sound of grace is ringing in your ears, that lovingly navigates and guides how you walk across campus engaging with people of all kinds of different worldviews in really loving and gracious conversations about things that contradict what you believe, but yet you love them. But there is a pervasive sense of confidence that you are God's child. And so you are able to love them in that way. And on and on and on. The sound of celebration, when the elder brother goes, what's that sound? He doesn't know what it is. What is it? That's what it is. It's the sound of welcome. It's the sound of acceptance. It's the sound of being, it's, it's the sound of knowing that you're family. That animates something in us, church. It's powerful. You know, my wife uh, lo- loves to have fun dancing at, when we're at weddings and things like that. She has a lot of fun with it. She enjoys it. 
And you can be at a wedding, and I've been to lots of weddings with Susan, where you'll be mid-conversation. You're like, so anyways, and da da and this and that, and we're talking, talking, and all of a sudden, a song will play. And Susan will, in the middle of the conversation, just be like, hold up. That's my jam. I have to dance. She gets up and she goes, she's like, I have to dance. That's what grace does in our hearts, church. When it's ringing in our ears, and God's word speaks to us in a corrective way, and in an admonishing way, and in a guidance way, and we hear it, the, it, the sound makes us say, hold on, I've got to live to his glory. Even this morning as I'm talking this way, and some of you are sitting there and saying, my, 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 I can recognize how my heart has been diseased by the religiosity of the older brother. I have felt like God has owed me things in my life. Because Here right now in this moment, as you hear that, there's no condemnation for you. Get up and dance, church. Right? We live to his glory because it's done in Christ. It's finished. That's what the sound means. It's powerful. It means that our life, as a, our life as believers is a lifelong celebration. It is not a lifelong audition. Kids, if you go to a dance audition, that means everybody's watching what you're doing, and they're like, maybe they're in, maybe they're not. Christian faith is not like that. Christian faith is not a dance audition. Christian faith is like a wedding celebration. When you're dancing at a wedding, you're not wondering if you're in or out. You're already in. That's why you're dancing. So kids, Christian obedience and desiring God's word to guide your life is precisely because you're in. It's precisely what's animating the desire to live to his glory. And I'm going to close with this. It's that when you look at this lost sheep, I'm going to back out, let's zoom way out. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. The lost sheep is found celebration. The lost coin is found celebration. The lost son is found celebration. When you come here, church, to worship God, not only are you celebrating toward him, he is celebrating over you. He says, come and gather so I can sing over you. So that my gospel of grace can be sung into your hearts so that you raise your voice and you sing and you sing the gospel into each other's hearts. That's why we gather, that's why we sing, so that the goodness of his love and grace animates us. It melts away the things, the sinful things that, that, that detract us from the goodness of God. These little mini messiahs that we want to worship, it melts those things away. We say, yes, the sound of grace has filled my ears. I will live to the glory of God. I desire to. Now consider the kind of community that that creates. See, if you believe that you're here... If you're like an older brother and you believe you're here because you somehow did something better than the person sitting next to you, then we're going to have a culture of comparison. It's going to be very difficult for you to love and care for the people around you because at the end of the day, you're kind of like, I'm better than you are. So I'm not really that interested in your life because at the end of the day, I'm better. But when we all walk in these doors and we realize, hold on a minute, we are all here by grace alone. There's a great compassion, culture of compassion we can have. If somebody doesn't walk in, whether they're really down and out or they're really up and out, Because when the religiosity of the older brother is going in our hearts, we really prefer that everybody sins the same way we do. Right? Somebody shares with you a sin and and you struggle with it too, you're like, yeah, you're so understanding. Somebody sins in a way that you don't, oh, no, that's really sinny. I have issues, but that's abhorrent. That's what we do. But the gospel of grace alleviates us from all of that comparison, draws us into compassion. And the final thing is this. Consider the boldness for evangelism. 
Do you want to know why people who are struggling, and I've done it, so I'm, this isn't an outside critique, I've done this. Do you know why people who struggle with religion, dead religion in their hearts don't share the gospel? Because they've divided the world up into good and bad people. So they're paralyzed to share the hope of faith in Christ because somebody's either, they think of themselves, well, since the whole point of the Christian life is to have a good life, this person's marriage seems to be good, their kids are healthy, and they've got a great job and they're making money. Actually, they have more money. It seems like they're, they're doing better financially than I am. So I really don't have anything to say to them. I mean, what do I have to offer? Because since, Christian li- since Christianity ultimately is just about getting the blessing of God, and I think the blessing of God looks like North American prosperity, since they already have all that, I really don't know what to say. Because they've divided the world up into good and bad. They're like, oh, they're too good for grace. They would, never aver- they would never say that, but fundamentally they're like, well, they don't really need it. And the other ditch is true. They look at the person whose life is a mess, the marriage is a mess, the kids are a mess, or maybe, perhaps they've got uh, morals and ethics that, that seem nothing like uh, Christian morals and ethics, and they're like, well, I don't think they seem like the kind of person that would bend their knee to God. So, like, I'm not going to share the gospel because they're too bad. Do you see the problem with the religious heart when you divide the world up with good and bad? Oh, these people are too good for grace. Oh, these people are too bad for grace. Jesus doesn't divide the world up that way. Jesus looks the Pharisees right in the eye, and he goes, the rebel gets in, the rule keeper stays out, drops the mic. Why? Because Jesus is dividing the world up into lost and found, not good and bad. Those that are united to grace through Christ, which gives us great confidence in evangelism to share the gospel in this city. There's nobody that's so good, they don't need God's grace. And there's nobody so bad that they're so far from God's grace. God is really good at running off the porch and kissing prodigals. And he's really good at coming out of the party and addressing self-righteous rule keepers to invite them both in. Gives us this radical hope in the gospel. And the message of the cross is that Christ lived that perfect life we could never live. He died that atoning death for us. He rose from the grave giving us hope that our death is not final. And that humbles us to the ground, and then it raises us to the sky. It humbles us to the ground because it says, Church, all of us are here today at Redeemer worshiping because we were so utterly helpless and incapable to save ourselves. The only way for us to be here was if the Son of God died on a cross. That humbles us into the ground. But then he raises us to the sky because the cross also says, He wanted to. He loves you. Jesus, from all eternity, who was enjoying his life with the Father, was willing to be separated from the Father so we could enjoy the sound of that celebration and be welcomed in. Dead religion calls you to a life of begrudging duty to God, but the gospel calls us into a life of love and true freedom, animated by the beauty of God. Let's pray.